Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. How many of you were here last week? Some of you are like, I didn't raise my hand. Are they going to judge me? For... Skipping? Uh, well, if you were here last week, then you got the joy of hearing Hannah Tom speak. Um, yeah. Uh, and I am thrilled to introduce you to her for those of you who do not yet know her because Hannah is our new pastor of spiritual formation here at Denver Community Church. Yeah. Um, I met Hannah, was it 10 years ago? And when I met her, I said, so what is it that you want to do? And she said, I want to preach. And I was like, I think we're going to be friends. <laughs> and so Hannah will be preaching uh, at least 12 times a year each year. Uh, and she's also leading our efforts, uh, not just with uh, adult ministries, but also really tr- helping us create a thread from the moment uh, someone comes into this world until the moment that they are old and um, because we're all on a journey. And so we're thrilled that she's here with us, and we wanted you to meet her, to uh, introduce her to all of you. And so I would love for you, after our gathering today, to find Hannah and introduce yourself and just hear and learn a little bit from her about what her heart is for this place. So uh, just before we jump in the teaching, I wanted to introduce you to her and pray for her, and then we'll uh, keep going. God, I thank you uh, for your daughter, our friend, our sister, Hannah. I thank you for the ways that you've gifted her, for the ways that you've led her to this place and led her to us to serve uh, in this time and in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. We ask that you would uh, give her a keen heart and listening ears so that she would do what you lead her toward uh, as we lead side by side and alongside so many others in this space. Again, we thank you for her. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, Hannah. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. If you were here last week, you heard Hannah speak about the first portion of Luke chapter 12. She actually said to me, she's like, this is the first sermon I'm preaching, and it's one of the most complicated passages in the book of Luke. And I said, well, you're welcome, because I knew that she would do great. Uh, But if you've read the first part of Luke chapter 12, you know that Jesus is talking about fear. What are we afraid of? And it's in the midst of this teaching on fear 
that Jesus is in some ways interrupted by a man who has a request for him. I'll begin reading in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, which I never know how to read this. Is it like man? Or is it like dude? Or is it like man? I, I don't know, but let's just say dude. Man, dude, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, the crowd, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So Jesus is talking about fear. And he's interrupted by this young man who is asking him to arbitrate between him and probably his older brother. And the reason I say it's his older brother is because it was left to the older brother to be the one who was basically the executor of his father's estate. And it was common in that time for someone to make a request like this of someone who was in a role or place of Je like Jesus. He was a rabbi. He was a respected teacher. Other people who would have been asked to do this would have been experts in the law or scribes or religious leaders. And the reason why is there was really two governing documents for life in first century Israel. The first is what we call Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's the law. If you've ever read through the Gospels, you'll see that word come up. And in it, there's 613 commandments that teach the people, here's how you should live day to day, week to week, month to month. This is the law you should live by. The other part was called tradition, capital T, later called Mishnah, which means sayings. And it's commentary on the law. And so it made sense for people to think, well, you know what we should do is if we have a dispute, let's ask someone who's an expert both in Torah and in our tradition to settle the dispute between us. That way, we can figure out what's the right thing to do. And so this young man goes to Jesus and he makes a request. But if you read the language carefully, he doesn't ask Jesus to settle a dispute he asked Jesus to tell his brother to do something. Now, there's some things about humans that just don't change. Siblings who are in an argument over their parents' estate after their parent has passed away. I mean, this is like family conflict 101. And he says, tell him to do or to give me my share of the inheritance. Because there was, in fact, rules about what the older son would have received and what the middle child would have received and what the youngest child would have received. And so, in some ways, it seems like he has a legitimate beef with his brother. 
that something is going on that's not right. But instead of saying, hey, help us settle the dispute, he's saying, tell him to do this. Tell him to give this to me. I want to get what's mine. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to enter into this. In fact, Jesus says, I'm not going to be an arbiter between you and your brother because you're not asking me to settle anything. You're asking me to tell him to do something. And then he says to the crowd, watch out. Be on your guard against greed. Now, one thing I know is that greed is a very, very serious topic in the sacred text, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. And any time that we see something that's mentioned a lot in Scriptures, it's something we should pay attention to. And the idea of greed is simply that you have an insatiable desire for more. Even if you don't need it, you want more. It's the connotation of you like white-knuckling the things that you have, holding on to them for dear life. One definition of greed is that you live without an awareness of God, believing that fulfillment of life will come through yourself. And Jesus says, be on your guard against that. And it's not the only time we hear greed framed negatively in the text. It's actually quite consistent. And one thing I've come to learn about the Bible is that whenever it talks about something consistently, it seems to be doing so because there's wisdom in it, and it's pointing toward the fact that this, whatever it's talking about in the negative, is something that seems to come with the kit of being human. For example, one of the things the Bible speaks about very often is our speech. The way that we speak toward others and the way that we speak about others. Have you ever noticed how much we like negative press about another person? Like, good stories, they just don't have the same, like, sticking in our heads, do they? Remember during the, pan the pandemic, John Krasinski, the guy who played Jim in the office and then somehow worked out for six years and became Jack Ryan, that guy? <laughs> He did this thing like the good news hour or whatever, and he did it with his kids, and everyone was like, oh, this is so precious. And it lasted for like six weeks. And then we were like, wait, we need to see like how many people are really train wrecking their lives because this is boring. It's why you can only spend one day at Disney World, the happiest place on earth. <laughs> By the way, I can only spend about 10 minutes there before I start getting hives because I love the negative. What is it about that that just sticks with us? This is why Paul says the words of a gossip, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, writer of Proverbs, the words of a gossip are like morsels that settle down into our deep places. You see, the Bible talks about this because something about being human enjoys this sort of thing, and it's not healthy. In the same way, the Bible talks about wealth, and the Bible talks about greed, and the Bible talks about poverty, and the Bible talks about possessions. Why? Because there's some wisdom contained within it that knows that somehow, some way, all of us have a tendency toward this sort of thing. And Jesus warns this guy and the crowd about it. Now, it's tempting to read this text 
and think that Jesus is coming in in like full-scale condemnation against this guy and against anyone who has greed, which means that preachers then stand up on a Sunday morning and they condemn everybody in the room for being greedy. And condemnation works, by the way. Like making you all feel guilty, it, it, it works. Until about like Tuesday afternoon. And then you kind of forget the sermon or you've like rationalized it all away and by like Tuesday at 5 p.m. you're back to living the life you were living before you showed up on Sunday. But I think this text, this story that Jesus tells, I think it's a little more subversive. Jesus actually doesn't seem to meet greed in this particular circumstance head on. Instead, he seems to come through the side door a little bit and he raises some questions for this young man who asked him to tell his brother to give him his share of the inheritance. And I think if we listen this morning, what we'll realize is Jesus is not just asking this young man questions. He's asking all of us questions. Now, you might wonder, well, why is he asking all of us questions? Well, I think it's because we all have a tendency toward greed. Now, you might be like, well, no, I don't. No, I mean, not me. Maybe you're sitting here and you've already had in your mind the kind of people who need to be here to hear this sermon this morning because it's definitely not you. But I think greed, honestly, is a part of the human condition. And our power of denial is the only thing that keeps us from actually accepting that. I've actually, I've been in this work as a pastor for about 25 years, and one of the things that's really interesting about this work that I never expected that we didn't talk about in seminary is that people will show up having never met me and will share with me some of the biggest mistakes that they've ever made in their life. They will confess to me. They will tell me about things that they've done, the ways that they've wounded people, the ways that they, the, the patterns that they've lived in their life. And in some ways, it's shocking that people would just show up and say it. In another way, it's actually very humbling because it's sacred that somehow this exchange is happening. And I could tell you stories about all the things that have been told to me over the years that would probably raise some eyebrows in the room. But you know what's interesting? In 25 years of these kinds of conversations with people, no one, has ever scheduled the time for me, gotten together, looked me in the eyes and said, I'm greedy. Not one time. Not one time has anyone ever said that. Even though, if we're honest with ourselves, we do like getting more things. And I would say... It's actually natural to want more things. As one of our own poets has said, we are living in a material world and I am a material girl. <laughs> we are material creatures. How can we not enjoy the material world around us? I mean, it can come from little things, just like by looking at a sunset or looking at a tree, like really looking at a tree and appreciating it and loving it. Why is it that we look at the mountains, a material thing, and something in us goes, <gasps> or you're by the ocean and you hear the waves crashing and something in you feels calm. Why? Because we're material creatures, which means it's natural for us to like material 
things. I like material things. In fact, there's some material things I like too much. Here's a material thing that I really love. A nice watch. Now, I come by it honestly. It's a genetic trait. My grandfather liked nice watches. And he bought nice watches. My father likes nice watches. And he's purchased a lot of nice watches. And speaking of inheritance, I'm getting at least two. <laughs> and I've made sure I'm the executor of his will, which means I might get three. I don't know. <laughs> I like nice watches. I just do. And people can say all the time, like, you don't need a nice watch. You just need one to tell time. Well, okay, that is ignorant, and that's fine. <laughs> or other people are like, I don't need a watch. I just have my phone. That tells me the time. Or like our really elevated friends, what is time? I'm like, please, put on a watch, and you'll figure it out. You know what else I like? This is absolutely pointless. I like technology. Now, I know we live with tech. I like to have the newest and best technology. And here's the thing. You know what the difference is between the iPhone 14 and the iPhone 15? Sorry, Samsung users. Do you know what it is? Nothing. <laughs> Not, and people complain about it. I'm not sure about this upgrade. I'm like, the thing films in 4K. The thing can like, run your entire life and you're complaining that it's not upgraded. Why do I like that? I don't know, but I do. What is it that you like? I mean, we all have something. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't like anything. Okay, I see you sitting there in your fourth Patagonia jacket. <laughs> we like things. And here's the thing, it's okay. It's okay. The problem comes in when we believe that those things are going to deliver something to us that they will never, in fact, deliver in the end. Because just like this young man, when I start considering fear... When anxiety begins to set in, when self-doubt creeps in, you know what I don't do? I don't put a watch on East wrist and go, oh, I feel so much better now. When was the last time you woke up in the middle of the night and your mind started racing and you couldn't go back to sleep and you were staring at the ceiling as your heart felt like it was trying to work its way outside of your chest? Did you go grab those material possessions that you seem to like so much and like hold on to those believing that they would soothe you somehow? You see, the reality is it's normal to actually enjoy material things. What happens with greed is we say we're going to actually keep getting more because at some point there will be a breaking point, there will be a tipping point, and it will deliver what we've wanted all along. We have an entire economy based on this, by the way. That just says, keep getting more, 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 more. And they sell the lie that life is fulfilled by getting more. But Jesus seems to see this in the young man, and that's when he says, hey, life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions, which seems to be the main point of this entire passage or of his entire conversation. But here's the thing that troubles me. If life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions, what does it consist of? Jesus actually never says what it consists of. He just says it, unless the chips fall where they may. 
I mean, you have a captive audience, Jesus. Why not just give us a three-point sermon, all starting with the same letter, telling us exactly what life consists of? Then we would have something to pursue. But he doesn't. He just offers that out and allows it kind of to float through the crowd. Almost like a question, inviting some level of introspection. And then he launches into this story about a guy who apparently backed his way into some serious wealth. Now, the fact that the guy had barns tells us that he was probably already pretty wealthy. And then, he, not only was he wealthy, but then he had more wealth. He, like, maxed out his 401k, had all of his kids' college funds set up and paid for and ready to go. He had everything he had ever wanted. And so then, the answer is, well... If this is all I've ever wanted, maybe there's something I don't know that I want. So he tears down the barns that exist, and he builds bigger barns. So now he's not only set himself up for the rest of his life, he's set himself up for the rest of his life to enjoy the rest of his life. I mean, basically what he did is he saved enough to buy a nice house in South Florida so he could play golf every day and otherwise do nothing in retirement. That's the good life. What's so fascinating about this passage is there's something very subtle in the story Jesus tells. The entire time, the guy is talking to himself. As a matter of fact, the self-referential part of this story happens four or five times. I know what I'll do, he says. I'll say to myself. In other words, Jesus is pointing out, hey, buddy, you're all alone. You think you've accomplished so much. But in your greed, in this belief that you, have, you will be able to fulfill what you've wanted all along, you have ended up isolated and you've ended up alone. Many commentators point that this actually echoes the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 5, he writes this. Suspension's building. <laughs> Woe to you! who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. What a depressing picture. You have it all and you're all alone. This is what happened with this guy. He has everything except relationship and community and connection. And he's left talking to himself saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Great, with who? You're all alone. You believe that getting more, you believe that you would be able to actually fulfill your own self. You've fallen for the lie that life is about the abundance of possessions. You've fallen for the cultural myth that tells you that the meaning of life is to accumulate goods. And now you're alone. And not only that, but God comes to him and says, you fool. Now, the question is that many have asked, like, what, what, what makes him a fool? Well, what makes him a fool is the belief that everything he's accumulated is actually going to deliver on its promise. You fool, God says, this very night your life is demanded of you, which is actually the language of a loan. It's the language of business, of credit. It's the bank calling saying, your payment is due. In other words, what is your life going to offer back? Or in the words of the wonderful poet Mary Oliver, tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? His only answer would have been, 
uh, accumulate a lot of stuff. I don't know the last time you were at a funeral, but I have the, the sacred task of actually being able to officiate a lot of funerals. And you know what I've never, ever heard at a funeral? No one ever gets up and adjusts the microphone and is like, we're all going to miss Gary. Man, remember how many boats he had? And that guy had so many cars. I loved his second house. Like, why? Why do we not get up and talk about all the stuff people possess when they die? Maybe it's because even though we have a tendency toward greed, something deep within us knows it doesn't really matter. And in some ways, the sorrow of the story that Jesus tells is the guy only recognizes what really matters when his death comes. This very night, your life is demanded of you, and who's going to get everything you've accumulated? You see, in some ways, this story is so troubling, and this passage is so troubling, because it doesn't give answers. It just raises a lot of questions for the young man who asked Jesus to tell his brother to give him his share of the inheritance, and it raises questions for us if we let it. Like, do you really think getting more stuff is really going to solve your problems in life? Or why do we seem to always want just a little bit more? Do we believe it will give us a sense of purpose? Do we think that other people will look at us and say, I want to be like them. Maybe you have status. Maybe it will get you noticed. Is it that you just want a little bit more comfort in your life? Is it because maybe you want a little bit more security in your life and you believe that more things will actually solve the worry and anxiety that you live with? Is it, believe you, is it because you believe people will look at you in a different way and really begin to appreciate who you are? Why do we, in our own way, build bigger barns? You see, Jesus doesn't give a whole lot of answers. And maybe Jesus doesn't give a whole lot of answers because Jesus doesn't seem concerned about solving a problem. Instead, he wants this young man to know that he has a problem. And being aware of that is the first step. Recognizing there is a problem that needs some consideration. And then Jesus finishes with another phrase. That doesn't really explain a whole lot. He says, this is how it'll be for anyone who is not rich toward God. It's like one of those Christian bumper stickers. You know, you see it, and for a second you're like, huh. And then you think about it for like four seconds, you're like, this makes no sense. Which is, let's be honest, it's like all Christian bumper stickers. We just need to do away with them. You don't know what it means. Commentators have long debated exactly what this means. But just like life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, kind of leaves us going, okay, and? So does rich toward God is like, okay, and? Could you explain a little bit more, Luke, in your gospel, what exactly Jesus meant? Jesus, could you explain a little bit more what you meant? But he doesn't do that. He just says it, and then it's like he leaves it hanging. 
Almost like he's inviting introspection from this young man and introspection from you and introspection from me and introspection from all of us. Leaving us to go and to think about the questions he's asking. Leaving us in a place of Jesus saying, I'm not here to solve your problem. I'm here to raise concern because I think you might have a problem. And maybe if you pay attention to that enough, you'll actually do some really good, hard thinking about what you believe life does, in fact, consist of. And maybe then you can be rich toward God. Now, I know some of you this morning are sitting here and you're like waiting for the punchline. You're like waiting for like, and this is what it means. Or maybe if you've never heard me preach, you're like, okay, at some point he's going to break out like three points of application, three things I can do this week that are going to make me less greedy or at least make me aware of my tendency toward greed. Or maybe I'll give you some sort of like quote and you'll be like, oh man, that put a bow on it. This guy's not bad. But the reality is, it just leaves us with questions. Questions about what's rumbling within our own hearts, within our own souls. Questions about while we might say we desire material things, what is that desire telling us about our deeper desires? And maybe that's why this passage is subversive. Maybe this is why Jesus doesn't meet it head on because he knows how easily we can deny things. Maybe Jesus is aware that none of us routinely confess to being greedy. So he leaves us with questions. What does life consist of if it's not an abundance of possessions? What might it look like for me to be rich toward God? And perhaps if we spend time with those questions, really spend time with them, we just might become those who understand what life, in fact, does consist of. And we might become those who live lives that are rich toward God. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we recognize that in so many ways and in so many places within our own lives, uh, we live without an awareness of you. We live in such a way where we believe that we are in charge of the fulfillment that we seek in our own lives, forgetting this is all a gift, that this is all grace. I ask that you would give us eyes to see within ourselves with ruthless honesty the ways in which we pursue something other than your grace, than your goodness, than your love, believing that somehow it will give us what we wanted all along. I ask that as we do that, that you would remind us of your goodness and of your grace that will follow us always. And then if we turn toward that, we just might find the beginning of a fulfilled life. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said, amen.
as we continue our time together this morning, uh, we're going to participate as we do each week in Eucharist. Eucharist is this meal that we celebrate. It used to be called the love feast in the early church because it was how God put on display God's love for everyone. And we're reminded that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said this according to the Gospel of Matthew. While they were eating and drinking, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here at Denver Community Church, we invite anyone who's willing to come and to participate in this meal. We ask that as you do, that you would come down the center aisle or the far side aisles where there are stations that you can receive the bread and the wine and then return using the diagonal aisles. Mm -hmm.